Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary Nolan today. Uh, it is Think Tank Thursday. We have had some conversations already this morning with some of the normal lineup. Uh, and right now we are heading into a conversation with Aaron Headland, the Chief Economist for the Show Me Institute. Aaron, do we have you on the line? I am here. Well, welcome to the Gary Nolan Show, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you this morning. Uh, so what do you have on your mind today? What's, what's the big issue you want to talk about? Well, there's so much going on right now, but of course, the, the major, major news is that we have the latest inflation data that just came out this morning, which shows that we are not even close to being out of the woods right uh. now. And inflation, yeah, I mean, inflation, the number was 8.2%, extremely high, but to me, almost more concerning than that is what they call core inflation, which is the part that, they, that the Fed really looks at because it kind of strips out food and energy, which tend to bounce around a bit. And that core inflation actually went up from the previous month. So really what this means is more rate hikes and more pain. I am not excited to hear this. Um, you know, it, on the one hand, many of us have been warning for years that, you know, look, if the government is just going to commit itself to printing money uh, more and more and more money, um, you have to expect that inflation is going to kick in at some point. And so a lot of us were kind of expecting inflation to come around eventually, even if we didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. Uh, is my read on that correct or is there some other cause here that's driving up prices the way that they're going? Yeah, I think there's a couple things going on, but the federal government overspending is right at the center of it. Because if you look at, particularly when it was completely unnecessary. So, you know, we can look at 2020, the federal government spent a lot of money, but the economy was also in, in a hole. And so it's sort of, there's, you can make an argument for that. You go to 2021, at the beginning of the year, inflation is still below 2%. And then the federal government, for reasons I cannot understand, I think it's purely ideological, they decided to spend another couple trillion. And it was right at that time. I mean, it's pretty shocking if you look at the data. It's literally within a month of that when inflation starts going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't stopped since. So you combine that with supply chain issues, and that's why we are where we are. Uh, so, so now that we've established the problem, how do we solve this? If, if you were going to write a prescription for the federal government about how to kind of stop the bleeding and, and get us on the road to, um, you know, not, not deflation, but, but at least a, a resumption of normal circumstances, what do we do? What's the proper way to come at this? Yeah, so first of all, I mean, let's start with the one entity which, while late to the game, is now, I think, taking the appropriate actions, which is the Federal Reserve. Uh, again, I think they were late, but now they're doing what they have to do. The problem is the only tool, really, that the Federal Reserve has to bring down inflation is, is by making borrowing more expensive and raising interest rates to basically discourage spending. So that is, by definition, kind of tough medicine. It, it's, it's like broccoli. People don't like it. Um, what the federal government could be doing on the, you know, in terms of Congress and the White House is really a pro-supply side agenda, which is the opposite of what they're doing. I mean, what they've been doing is throwing more artificial stimulus into the economy and then constraining supply by, through tax hikes and more regulations. So what they should really do is, number one, like on the energy front, make it much easier to get permits instead of harder to get permits. We need to cross the board all the, all the above strategy and energy. We should be talking about tax cuts, not tax hikes. We should be doing anything we can to get businesses to hire and to invest. And that, think about inflation this way. 
inflation's too much money chasing too few goods. We need less artificial money and more goods. Okay, that yeah, that makes sense. So, so when you talk about coming at it from the supply side, what it sounds to me like you're saying is we have a limited amount of goods and services that are out there, and and the constraints on that supply means that the prices are necessarily going to go up. And so, the remedy for this is increase that supply, make it easier for people to p- uh, provide these goods and services that people want. Is that am I understanding that correctly? That's exactly correct. I mean, all the labor shortages we've been hearing about and supply chain issues. By the way, supply chain issue is not an excuse to say the federal government can't do anything about it. I mean, federal policy is also partly to blame for the supply chain issues, mm-hmm. as, as it is for the labor shortages. So, you know, we've been actively discouraging work, really, for the past year and a half. So if we got more people to work, then businesses would be able to meet demand without price hikes. So I've got a question for you along those lines, um, and my understanding is really limited in this way. Um, but so I think that a lot of the incentives not to work that we saw in 20 and 21 have been getting kind of um, whittled away over the last several months. Um, and yet I still see that there are people advertising for jobs all the time. They're having a really difficult time getting people to go come in and apply for those jobs. Um what else can be done? I mean, what other cuts to um, to incentives not to be employed do you think we might be able to implement here? Yeah, so I think the problem is twofold. I mean, number one is there is sort of a genie out of the bottle phenomenon, which is when the federal government gives thousands and thousands of dollars of you know excessive unemployment benefits and and again excessive stimulus to people then that has long lasting effects. So even once, yeah. for example, at the end of, at the end of last year, the the child the, the Biden's uh, administration's kind of revamped version of the child tax credit, which didn't have work requirements in it anymore, that expired. But nevertheless, people's checking accounts were flush, and that made it easier to basically not go back to work quite as quickly. So it some to some extent, we just have to wait for that to kind of work its way out of the system and people will gradually come back. And we have been seeing finally people gradually come back. Um, we could, what we could do going forward is we could, again, do further tax reforms to, to, to not discourage people from working. Um, so what, what kind of tax reforms ask. do you have in mind? Well, so for example, I mean, on the, on the low end of the spectrum, they actually, people kind of in the lower earning end of the spectrum actually face some of the highest penalties to working. And which is counterintuitive. People tend to think, well, you know, the more you earn, the higher the tax rate you pay. But when you look at the tax code, you don't, you shouldn't just look at the actual tax check that you write to the IRS. It's also all the various benefit systems we have. There are many benefit programs we have that have basically what you call cliffs, where you get some kind of government benefit. And then if you earn a dollar more than the cliff, suddenly you lose that entire benefit. You actually end up worse off than before. So what we really need to do is reform our entire kind of safety net system to where there's always, we, there always has to be an incentive for people to climb the ladder and never penalizing them for doing that. Uh, and then also you've got two earner families. If, you know, because of the way we kind of jointly file taxes right now, a secondary earner gets penalized more than the, the primary earner, so that discourages people from working. So there's a number of things we can do. And really the, the difficult thing also is we have people who are in their early 60s and upper 50s who kind of retired early during COVID. And I don't know, that's probably a more difficult thing to try to get some of those people to come back. 
Okay. Well, so the second part of this question, and this may be too far afield from your own area of expertise, so let me know if that's the case. But what are the actual likelihoods that we that there's a political will to get these things done? Um, you know, do you think that it is reasonable to think that maybe after the midterm elections um, there might be a ch- the chance of making some of these changes that you think would be beneficial? Or do you think that the Biden administration is just going to sit on this and we're going to be stuck with it for at least another couple of years? Yeah, unfortunately, I think the best case scenario is we end up with divided government after November. And that that is actually positive compared to the current status quo, because right now there's essentially a very counterproductive tug of war happening right now between the elected branches of the federal government and the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve is trying to do whatever it can to, to bring inflation down. But then the elected branches are spending, 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 which makes the Federal Reserve's job that much harder. So I think at least if you have a change in Congress in November, then that'll stop the overspending. It won't go the next step, which is the kind of supply-side reforms that we need. Unfortunately, I fear we're going to have to wait for 2024 for that kind of thing. Because really, you have two very different visions of government mm-hmm. that are out there right now. And, the frankly, the left, whenever, whenever, whenever conservatives and market types talk about expanding supply and bringing down tax rates and deregulating, the left calls that, trickle down mm-hmm. well that's not that's not trickle down right? that that is a matter of giving power to individual people and giving them the incentive to produce the trickle down is actually coming from the left because they're talking about trickle down government where you basically centralize resources in the federal government and then the federal government decides which energy is acceptable to produce and which energy and then is not subsidizes it right exactly yeah yeah. Well, hey, we are coming up on a on another commercial break here. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. I certainly feel smarter for having talked to you. Um, we are going to be back on the other side of this with Keith Skipper from the Republican National Committee, uh, and we'll get his thoughts on the economy. Hopefully, I'll learn even more. Uh, if you'd like to call in, the number is 1-800-529-5572. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan. Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, we have had some interesting conversations this morning on Think Tank Thursday. We talked to Jim Babka from Downsize DC. Just got off the line with Aaron Headland, the chief economist at the Show Me Institute, and now uh, we are pleased to be able to have a chat with Keith Skipper. Um, with uh, now, Keith, are you with the the Republican National Committee, or or, or how are you associated with them? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I am the director of regional communications um, for the at the Republican National Committee. So I oversee all our our, our comm staff that are in the states. Okay, great, great. Well, uh, thank you so much for making the time to call in and chat today. Uh, what's on your mind? What do you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, look, I I think the biggest thing that's on everyone's mind has been for throughout. Uh, the Biden administration's time, but particularly today, is uh, inflation. I mean, we got new uh, new uh, core inflation numbers that showed that we are consumer prices are uh, at or have been at or above five percent for seventeen straight months. Uh, real average uh, wages are down three percent according to the report today, uh, and it really um, goes to show that. Uh, this administration has inflicted a lot of pain uh, on on our uh, on, on folks across this country, and it's why uh, in less than a month, 
Uh, we are going to elect majorities uh, to hold this, to, to have some balance and to bring some accountability and to um, make sure that we uh, stop this reckless spending that has really been in large part driving the outrageous costs we've seen. So what is the Republican plan for addressing this? Is it just saying no when the administration comes and says we want to have more spending? Or is there are, are there other elements to the Republican plan to rein in this inflation? Sure. I mean, uh, um, uh, House Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy released his commitment to American plan, commitment to America plan a few weeks ago. And it really highlights and, and outlines um, what our agenda is. And it, it is, you know, obviously with inflation and, and, and overall prices, a large part of it is stopping this reckless spending. I mean, we've seen since the $1.9 trillion uh, original stimulus plan passed, you know, in the early days of the Biden administration. Uh, since that plan was passed and, and enacted, uh, that's when we saw inflation going up. But there are other things, too. You know, we need to bring back energy independence, and Republicans have... Uh, made their commitment known uh, that they are going to fight for in the short term getting some more offshore drilling, getting some more um, American energy produced here in this country, but also long term vi- uh, visions such as getting the Keystone Pipeline uh, uh, built and getting, you know, Anwar in Alaska, you know, which has gone through, you know, 40, 50 years of back and forth was finally decided to move forward uh, in President Trump's administration and Biden shut that down. But we're going to do what we can to, to get that back on track and make sure, you know, that's a large part uh, driving inflation as well. I mean, gas is up. Although, of course, there are limits to what the Republicans can do while the White House remains in Democratic hands. Um, I, I am interested I mean, to know. If Joe Biden doesn't want to work with Republicans, that's going to be Joe Biden's uh, decision. Of course, he'll be back sure. on the ballot in two years, too. So, Yeah, I mean, that, that does put the onus on the White House if you've got a, a Congress that is pushing for these kinds of energy reforms and the White House uh, chooses to be obstructionist about that. That gives a very clear issue for voters to distinguish uh, potentially the presidential candidates in 2024. Um, I'm interested to know, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about oil pipelines and things like that. Um, and I, I think that those likely would be helpful. Has the Republican Party um, put any thought into ways that they can make it easier for nuclear plants to come back online or, or to build new nuclear plants? Definitely. I mean, as I, I, we help elect governors all across this country, and, and there are a lot of governors uh, making that exact um, commitment. And saying, you know, we have. Uh, I know Carrie Lake has talked about this. I mean, there's been folks all across making sure that you know that is one of the the cleanest forms of energy that we can produce. But it's something that Democrats have obviously stood uh, against and have pushed back. They want you know more solar, more uh, wind, or as you know, which look. We certainly can do a whole of uh, a whole of government approach towards you know producing more of the of these renewable energies, but nuclear is certainly part of that. Um, well, yeah. And- and so as as far as the renewables are concerned, yeah, I'm I'm a free market environmentalist. I would love to see renewables be economically feasible. But part of the problem we've got with renewables right now is is not only are they not as clean as they purport to be, but also mm-hmm. um, they require a really sophisticated and, and well-developed battery technology to make them feasible at a large scale. And we don't have that right now. 
And, and so that's no, we, one of the reasons why I kind of favor nuclear as a solution because it's a technology. We, it's a very mature technology. Um, it's a remarkably safe technology. Um, and, and it's one that also doesn't have some of the negative side effects uh, in terms of pollution, um, that, that fossil fuels would have. And so I just, I think that, Nuclear should be a no-brainer for folks on the left who are all about environmental responsibility, but it doesn't seem that they're on the forefront of this for some reason. No, they're not, and they do tend to mislead on on what you hammer, what you just mentioned, which is that it is very safe. Um, you know, I think part remarkably of safe, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think part of the issue is that uh, you know they're very beholden to. Um, their special interest folks, especially the ones that are big donors, and those folks tend to be more invested in these other forms that, like you said, are very expensive. Um, well, and they also tend to be older, and, and so they were probably raised in the era where the left was all about no nukes, no nukes, that kind of thing. I, I think that, that yeah. factors into it as well. Um, well, I, I'm glad to hear that the Republican Party has has a, a plan for going forward on these things. What are some other? I, I love the fact that you brought up the states and the governors and what they're doing. Um, what is the Republican Party's plan for the states in the next couple of years? Well, that's the beautiful thing about states; they all have very unique challenges. You know, in Arizona, uh, you know, the border crisis that we see uh, uniquely impacts it. You know, they in Yuma and that Yuma sector, they're seeing folks come in nonstop, uh, and so Kerry Lake has a very bold uh, vision and 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 securing the border with new te- with implementing you know the technology that we have available with drones, and she's committed to doing what she can to build a wall. Same thing for Governor Abbott. Uh, in Nevada, you know, they have uh, that, that that governor's race is, is hotly contested, one that we certainly feel we, we were going to pick up. Uh, and there we have a governor who has overseen a education system that has just been failing students, always either 49th or 50th in the nation. And we see a, a bold Republican vision to bring in more school choice, uh, bring in, you know, fighting for ways to get, you know, education savings accounts so that you know, folks that live in struggling uh, you know, areas where their schools are struggling ha- or have the capability to um, invest in putting their kids in schools that uh, would meet their needs. And that includes charters and private schools and such like I that. I am all about school choice. So this is music to my ears. Uh, we are getting ready to wrap up this segment. So did you have any kind of final thoughts you wanted to leave listeners with before we went into this next commercial break? Well, you know, we do have a very important Senate race uh, as well in Missouri and, you know, races all across the country. And so if you'd like to get involved, I encourage you all, encourage all your listeners to go to vote.gop, join our team. You know, we only have a few weeks left, so uh, we need all hands on deck. Let's make sure that we elect strong conservative Republicans who are going to do what they can to turn around this country, turn around your state, turn around your school boards, do all that sort of thing. Go to vote.gop and get involved. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Keith, for being on the show. We sure do appreciate it. Uh, we are about to go into this next commercial break. If you'd like to call in, uh, the number is 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. Uh, 
we're going to have, I believe, Representative uh, Bill Hardwick on to discuss a constitutional amendment that you're going to be voting on this fall. And I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. It deals with the National Guard. So stick around and come back and talk with us on the other side of this break. This is Dave Rowland on The Gary Nolan Show on the Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show. Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland sitting in for Gary Nolan on The Gary Nolan Show. We have a special guest this morning on Think Tank Thursday. Ordinarily, we would be talking to Ron Calzone, a close personal friend of mine. But instead, uh, he suggested that we talk to State Representative Bill Hardwick, uh, who has... Uh, I believe it was the sponsor for a constitutional ballot issue that Missourians are going to be voting on next month. And so I thought it would be a great idea to have him on to talk a little bit about this issue, about why he thought it was uh, something that we needed to add to our Constitution. So, uh, Bill, welcome very much to The Gary Nolan Show. Hey, good morning, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thank you so much. And, and we actually have Bill here in the studio this morning, so it's cool that I get to actually you know sit down and talk to him face-to-face. <laughs> face uh i think that that improves the communication a fair bit so let's let's get a little bit of background so listeners yeah. know where you're coming from first so you're a state representative right i am yes finishing my first term uh, first two years in the legislature okay so you got elected in in 2020, 2020 during covid that's uh, right during covid and yeah. amidst all the other furor that was going around elections that it, year it that's was exciting. kind of a wild year to run for office for the first time yeah, there's a lot no going on kidding. around the country and then around the world and then uh you know the covid and all the, the the debate about that what you do what you don't do that was a really interesting time to kind of stake out your positions absolutely so you know I, I think it'd be interesting to learn more about your background what yeah. led you into politics as as a profession um so honestly i started uh, i started working jobs i joined the military joined the missouri national guard and then i worked i worked in um i did construction jobs and stuff like that and i kept thinking okay well, who's this person's boss? Why do we have to do it that way? Well, what, you know, what, who made up that rule, right? I kept going back to that. So what, what's that, what's the deal with that? And then I figured out that all of these rules and mores and norms came from politics, right? They had this big fight about it. Yeah. And then oh, every yes. issue, yeah, <laughs> that's right, right? So I was like, well, I'll just go there and I'll just get in the middle of the debate about everything, so. All right, great, great. Um, so, so you mentioned that you had a background in the National Guard. Right. How did that come about? Um, so, I had so my both my grandparents were in the Army, and they were Vietnam and World War II vets, mm -hmm. and they retired from Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And so, I had I grew up admiring them and their service. And then I had relatives, my cousins, my uncle. They were guardsmen and they were veterans. And I just and I just grew up there by the military base. And every you know every man I really admired who was a strong man or a strong leader was a soldier. And I just thought, man, that's what I want to be. And, uh, and I'm glad I did. It was really good for me, really changed my perspective. And, uh, if some, if it's something you're able to do and you got a passion for this country or this state and this country, you would join the national guard. I think it's good to, to serve and give back. And it really, you know, it really changes you, I think a little bit for the better, right? It gives mm -hmm. you better perspective. Yeah, well, I happen to agree. Uh, I come from a military family myself. I'm one of the very few members, male members of my yeah. generation who did not go into the military full time. So, um, yeah, I appreciate the the importance of military service and the fact that you were willing to uh, to do what it takes to to participate in that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been an honor. 
So the the ballot issue that that you proposed and, and, and did you sponsor this? And the first thing I want to go, yeah, Adam Schnelting, uh, Representative Adam Schnelting, who represents the St. Charles area, uh-huh, okay. who actually has a background as an engineer, combat engineer too in the military. He actually was the sponsor. He and I collaborated the language. Oh, okay. And then oh. I wrote the ballot language. So what you'll see on November, that's me. Oh, okay. That's my that's my addendum to it. And well, the actual language is the ballot language is mine. Yeah. So so let's talk about that ballot language. So the the ballot language itself or the the issue itself uh would amend the missouri constitution uh article 4 section 12 yeah. and that's a section where it lays out some of the different offices in the executive branch and uh among the other offices like the department of insurance the department of labor and industrial relations this amendment would add a department of the national guard Yes, precisely right. So the Constitution lays out 13 executive departments plus the office administration, and then it says it's capped at 15 plus mm-hmm. OA, and the legislature can create two additional departments through Enabling Act. The legislature has already done that. It's created the Department of Corrections and the Department of Health and Senior Services. Those mm-hmm. are the two legislature-created cre- departments. So we're capped out unless we change the Constitution on the executive departments that we can have. Which is unless, act- unless the legislature went back and eliminated one of the other departments. We could. That and, that, you know, and that's actually something early on I kind of <laughs> proposed that. I was like, why don't we consolidate and restructure, right? Because the statute also gives the governor the ability to restructure sure. the executive branch. He can propose a restructuring um, a proposal to the legislature. It kind of gets it, it kind of gets adopted with no action, like when mm-hmm. the legislature's in session. But all those seem like they were problems because when somebody stakes out their claim or their role – their part in government, it's really hard to um, to remove that, right, or consolidate that. So that seemed like a political impossibility to me. So the, so the the conclusion was, okay, the easiest way to rectify what we think we need to rectify here is with a slight change to the Constitution mm-hmm. that just parses out the National Guard as its own department, which, I mean, 48 states have a structure like that. It's mm-hmm. only, only us in Massachusetts have this structure where the Guard's up under law enforcement. Okay. Um, so, so in addition to the language that we had just talked about with, um, with, uh, section 12, yeah. it would also add a new section 54 to that article. And the wording here is there shall be established a Missouri Department of the National Guard in charge of the adjutant general appointed by and serving at the pleasure of the governor. Right. By and with the advice and consent of the Senate. Yeah. Who shall provide for the state militia, uphold the Constitution of the United States, uphold the Constitution of Missouri, protect the constitutional rights and civil liberties of Missourians, and provide other defense and security mechanisms as may be required. That's your language, right? Yes. Okay, great. So, uh, you, you said that we are one of, you said, two states that... Only us in Massachusetts have this structure. So, yeah, and so... I, I want to talk about the themes there in that language that we made sure that was there. Well, let's let's get and, yeah. to that. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what the structure currently is sure. so that okay. we understand where we are and then where we might be going yeah. first. So so what does the structure currently look like with the National Guard being lumped under the Department of uh, Public Safety? So both in the Constitution and the, the statutory scheme, there's a reference to the organized militia. Mm-hmm. The organized militia is what we call the National Guard. It identifies the adjutant general. It identifies all the people in it. And, and guardsmen hold both a state and a federal commission because they have both a state and federal mission, right? Mm-hmm. And that's actually part of federalism that's in the U.S. Constitution. And so this goes back forever. But then we have that juxtaposed with our requirement that we have only so many executive departments. So about 40, 50 years ago, there was an executive order, and it turned out to be an executive agreement, that because of this 
executive department structure, the guard for billing purposes, for, um, for, for administrative purposes, would be housed in DPS. But what's happened over time is the National Guard's mission's changed a whole lot. It's, it's now uh, not just a strategic reserve, it's an operational force, right? You can deploy it around the world. There's a federal mission. The Missouri National Guard is one of the only National Guards, I think it's the only National Guard in the United States, that has a nuclear mission, right? We have nuclear bombers at a Mikeman Air Force Base that are part of a Missouri National Guard bomb wing. So it has a very unique both state emergency response mission and then a federal overseas part of our national security mission that's a whole lot different than the highway patrols mission right and so the, the guard has almost nine thousand you know to be the air force ten thousand folks give or take right and then and dps in addition to that is a huge department itself so it makes a whole lot of sense that they have different missions different budgeting priorities different roles they play in the in the activation of a state emergency so for functionality purposes that makes a whole lot of sense the statute says the adjutant general is the chief of staff to the governor mm-hmm. for military affairs. He's the military secretary in Missouri, right? And so for functionality purposes, if there's an activation, um, the reason why all these other states have gone to that is for streamlined purposes, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I think sets up the best functionality approach. But if you want, I could talk about you know the themes and protections that we put in there to make sure it's something special. I do want to talk about <laughs> that. here. So what I would want to do though i want to save the discussion about the themes until we're on the other side of the upcoming commercial break and and in the meantime yeah um the language that you've got here talks about the the adjutant general being appointed by and serving at the pleasure of the governor is that currently how it's handled so you you can do a you can do a survey of all the so so each state does how come what they want right Mm -hmm. and they pick adjutant generals different ways so like in pennsylvania the legislature used to adopt it in south carolina there was an election process Mm -hmm. dc is not under you know there's not state 10th amendment thing in dc so the dc adjutant general reports directly to the secretary of the army you know Mm -hmm. or through the defense department to the president um so in missouri what we've done is the governor nominates somebody that has at least five years as a field grade officer 10 years in the national guard and then the Senate confirms that person. And they can go through a separate federal recognition process to be recognized as an Army general. But Missouri had no statute necessarily that talked about how the term was served or how they could be removed. So like in Oklahoma, the adjutant general served at the pleasure of the Oklahoma governor. In some states, they have fixed terms, fixed mm-hmm. number of years. So it's really important to me, if, you, if we are going to parse a different department, I think there are good functionality reasons to do that that we reaffirm the principle of civilian control mm. and state control, right? That the ultimate boss of the National Guard is the state, unless there's one of those exceptions, like they're called into for war for Title X, or you know, there's certain exceptions that the president has, like under the Insurrection Act or the Stafford Act. But otherwise, that chain of command needs to end with the governor, right? The people of Missouri elect the governor. They need to assert civilian control over the National Guard. You don't want to have an autonomous military department. So well, to, and that's that's yeah. part of the current Missouri Constitution as well, is that the military and the police will always be subservient to the people. That's correct. Yeah, and, and that's very important. And it's an affirmation of this, right, yeah. that, that the governor can remove the tag at his pleasure, so it's under state control, mm-hmm. and that the tag has a now constitutional duty to not just uphold the, the constitutional protections of the federal government, but to uphold the state constitution as well, right? I think that is a fantastic place 
to leave off as we go into our commercial break. And we're going to pick it up on the other side, talking about the themes of upholding the Constitution of the United States, upholding the Constitution of Missouri, and protecting the constitutional rights and civil liberties of Missourians. We are talking with Bill Hardwick, state representative, who uh, authored the language that you guys are going to be voting on this fall. We'll be back on the other side of the break. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Rowland sitting in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, we have been talking to Representative Bill Hardwick, who uh, wrote the language for uh, an issue that you're going to be voting on in just a couple of weeks at the general election. The proposal would create a new department of the state government that is the Department of the National Guard. One of the things we talked about in the last segment is that uh, Missouri is apparently one of only two states that does not currently have this kind of a setup. And so uh, Representative Hardwick and some of his co uh, cohorts in the uh, legislature decided, you know, let's fix this. Let's let's adjust the way that we're doing things in Missouri. But it requires uh, a constitutional amendment to get this done. Uh, we read the language of this provision in the last segment, but I want to go over it again because we're about to get into some of the details and talk about some of the themes in this. Um, the, the new proposal says, There shall be established a Missouri Department of the National Guard in charge of the adjutant general appointed by and serving at the pleasure of the governor by and with the advice and consent of the Senate who shall provide for the state militia, Uphold the Constitution of the United States, uphold the Constitution of Missouri, protect the constitutional rights and civil liberties of Missourians, and provide other defense and security mechanisms as may be required. So, Representative Hardwick, talk to me a little bit about these themes, the idea right. of upholding the U.S. Constitution, the Missouri Constitution, and defending the civil liberties of Missouri. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the National Guard itself, you're, you know, your lawyer, David, kind of talked about that. It is one of the most interesting legal organizations because simultaneously it's under the, the control of the state and some in some ways the control of the federal government, resourced by the federal government. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16 of the U.S. Constitution delineates federalism for the National Guard, that, there, that the Congress has regulation, but the appointment of officers and training is left to the individual states. So we've got a dual role. And there's a very important reason why the Founding Fathers set the Constitution up that way. Because they didn't want all the military power, just like any power, to be concentrated in a few hands, right? We want to diffuse power and control. And that includes especially military power to the people, to the states, right? Guardsmen are from your local communities. They're from your, your, your their neighbors, right? And so it's important that they have, that the military power is kind of you know, diffused, spread out, checked, checks and balances in, into the hands of kind of local people. And so... What we want to do, and, and we also recognize, okay, the guards had to, not just a bigger mission internationally and in overseas deployments, but also in terms of civil unrest in the United States and responding to things like COVID and responding to all kinds of things domestically. So it's really critical, especially if that military power is used in the United States, that there's a series of checks on it. So one is the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Uh, this key amendments there, and then the Missouri Constitution, and that simultaneously they uphold whatever protections, civil liberties, concepts of free speech, due process, right, whenever they're operating. And so we wanted to make sure that that was very clear in the Constitution, too, that the Guard's foremost duty, just like any public official's duty, should be to make sure that the, the, the limitations and controls on government power and the rights that individuals have that are sacredly protected are, that are, are foremost protected by those soldiers, those officers in the National Guard. Interesting, interesting. So, 
I'm interested to get your take on whether the language that that you proposed here um, would have any influence on what happens if the federal government yeah. called out the National Guard for service within the state's own borders. Like we do know, yeah. sometimes the National Guard gets called out for service in other locations, um, but. And, and if, if the national, if the Missouri National Guard is serving overseas, then um, they're going to have a difficult time upholding <laughs> the Missouri Constitution or the civil liberties of Missourians yeah. in that context. But let's assume that they are within the state's borders. Um, you know, would there be the potential for a conflict between orders given by the governor and orders given by, say, the president? Yeah, sure, and that happens from time to time in American history. I mean, a famous example is uh, George Wallace. Yeah, mm-hmm. where he, uh, General Graham, was then the adjutant of the Alabama National Guard, mm-hmm. working for George Wallace, and George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse doors, and then the president federalized the National Guard, right, and said, "Now you're in the army, General Graham. You work for me. Mm-hmm. Remove the governor out of the way." So things like that have happened, right? And there's this tension between state power and federal power that all that 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 naturally happens. You know, Madison talked about that. He said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to divide power up and people are going to try to yeah, grab power opposed by That's power. Right. Yeah. People try to Madison, get power. Brilliant guy. Yeah, they'll check power. And the guards like that too, right? So we've got the state and the state legislature's influence and in our state constitution and we've got this federal mission. So we should not be afraid of the places where there are friction in that. Right. That's why we have a governor. That's why we have two U.S. senators representing the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. That's why we have the attorney general who says, I think this violates the Constitution. Right. And those friction points should naturally happen. And that's OK. But what we want to do is we want to make sure that the, the, the structure, the federalist structure, and when I say federalism, I mean checks and balances and division of power is in place. Right. That we want to affirm that there is this thing called the state. Mm-hmm. That there's residual and dual sovereignty, just like Scalia said, you know, in, in, in various cases. And the, the state can exercise that. And the people exercise control through their state elected officials. Well, so so let's assume that we had a situation where it was it was kind of like General, uh, rather, Governor Wallace or Governor yeah. Faubus in Arkansas, um, where they just strongly disagreed with uh, what the president was ordering yeah. the National Guard to do. How how would that play out in practicality? Yeah, and, and for sure, that's a bad, <laughs> maybe a bad example, because George Wallace is wrong, right? Bad position. But it's an example. But we also can't always assume that the state that's right. is going to be correct. But I mean, that's right. So yeah. so the, the accumulation of power and power mm-hmm. unchecked is the problem. And the Guard exists just for that reason, right? To check power. We're dividing up the military power. Okay, so... And, and that's a, it's a check on federal power and active duty power and accumulation power. That's why it exists. So would the governor be able to kind of countermand uh, an order yeah. issued by the president? So that happened. No. So um, this is that's actually a controversial subject. Some mm-hmm. states have imposed save the guard acts mm-hmm. that require the, the state to check on um, calling the militia. Mm-hmm. It seems pretty clear in Article 2 the president has a power to call forth the, emission, the militia to repel invasion or uh, insurrection. That's my take, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's very clear in the executive power. Um, but for sure, those friction points happen. You've seen governors do that, right, with local domestic missions. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. You know, we want to make sure the president's following the law in the Constitution, too. And them checking is how they do that. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Representative Hardwick, for being in here. We've been talking about uh, which which ballot issue is it? It'll be Amendment, Amendment 5. Yeah, Amendment it's 5. It's interesting. Uh, so keep an eye out for that on your general election ballot coming up in November. Uh, be thinking about how you want to vote on that. Uh, we are about to go into another commercial break, and when we come back on the other side, we'll be talking again about some of the themes that we hit on early in the show uh, with the First Amendment and potentially election fraud. 
We welcome you back. Uh, the number is 1-800-529-5572. This is Dave Roland filling in on the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show.